Now for our message today, it will be brought to us by Mr. Matthew Steele. It is entitled, The Chosen. Good afternoon. How many of you have met some new people here at the feast? Hey, that's almost everybody. That's great. It's interesting, isn't it? When you meet somebody new for the first time, I don't know if you've noticed this, but you kind of follow a pattern, don't you? You, uh, you share names. Hi, my name is. What's your name? Oh, where are you from? Uh, oh, I'm from such and such a place. Where do you, and especially at the feast, where do you fellowship? Which church do you go to? Oh, do you know so-and-so? No, I've never heard of that guy. But we start asking each other questions, right? And, we're, we're, and it's, uh, it's all part of this process where we're really asking one big question, aren't we? Who are you? Right? Because we don't know each other. We can make some assumptions. We, we subconsciously make some assumptions about how people are dressed or uh, where, how strangely they talk and where they're from, things of that nature, right? But ultimately, we want to know, who are you? And this isn't a bad thing. This is, I'm sure there's kind of a psychology and a sociology around it. And I'm sure all the, you know, sociologists would tell us that it's to do with, you know, our fear of being eaten by somebody new, you know. But, but fundamentally, we just want to know who each other is. Who are you? And so we ask these questions. And we're trying to find out if we have things in common. If we have shared experiences. Because that, that connects us together. And probably almost as important as that, is what do you believe? What do you believe about life? What is your philosophy for life? So who are you? And what do you believe? And so today I want to ask that question of us individually and as a group, as a, as a, a gathering, as a feast site, as as this church that Jesus has built and is building. Who are we to God? Who are we to him? The Bible describes us in many ways, doesn't it? And not all of them are good descriptions. Right? Isaiah 53, verse 6, says that we are lost sheep. We're just lost sheep out here. And sheep, sheep are not very smart. Have you noticed that? And they're very, very singly focused on that green piece of grass that's on the other side of the fence. And never mind the, the green pasture that's behind them. And we're like, we're like these sheep. In Romans, chapter 5, verses 6 through 9, Paul gets a little tougher on us. And he says that we are ungodly, that we are sinners. And that while we were still in this ungodly and sinful state, Christ died for us. Almost as though he's, 
he's recognizing, he's telling us this is our natural condition without Christ Jesus. And then Jeremiah 17, 9, probably the worst or the harshest criticism of all, deceitful and wicked. The human heart, he says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Who can know the end of it? And we've certainly seen, unfortunately, examples in history, haven't we, of how deceitful and wicked the human heart can be. So we don't like these answers. Anybody like these answers? You want me to stop there with these answers? This is who we are? This is not who we are anymore, is it? It's not the whole truth. So who are we? And right now I have this tune in my head, thanks to my wife, who I was telling her about my message last night, and she's like, oh, who are you? Now it's all in your head, too. You can thank her for that. Actually, you know, I, I wasn't overly familiar with that song, but it's used in that crime show. Uh, I forget what the name of it was. CSI, right. And I always said, thought that they were singing Cool Water. And I was like, what? why are they saying that? But who are we? Are we this? Are we what I've just read? Or are we someone else? Something else. Something that God is building. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, the Apostle Peter, in writing to the church that's just spread abroad, right? He's just writing to these disconnected, scattered believers in the Roman world at the time. He was writing to them to tell them who they were. And when he first wrote this, this was radical doctrine. This was perhaps some of the newest radical things that many of these people had heard. Just don't forget, not all these people that were Christians by this point had followed Jesus around. They had heard from others who had heard from others who had heard from others. And there was lots that they still had to learn. And so Peter says this in verse 1. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, evil speaking, all those things, right, that, that just we can so easily, easily fall into. Lay those aside. That is not who we are anymore. He says, as newborn babes, brand new creatures. I mean, you just look at a newborn baby, and we might not have some newborns, but we've got some precious little ones, and they are pure, and they are un tarnished from the world. And he's saying this is where we are. We're spotless. We're clean. We're innocent of all charges. As newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Drink in that word. Drink it in. Live off that word. Become more and more like the source of that word. More and more like the creatures that, that God wants us to be. He says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Is the Lord gracious? Absolutely. We know that. And yet it is a challenge sometimes, isn't it, to go and just drink of the milk of the word. So many things can get in our way. But he says, 
We should come to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. And that is so key to who we are. We are chosen and precious. Chosen by God and precious. You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect and precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, well, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. Now Peter is saying a lot of things here. I mean, he is, he is spanning history. He's going through time here. He's drawing on ancient promises that were given to a different set of people. To the people that we know as Israel. Judah. The offspring of Jacob. But he's taking these promises and he's doing something different with them. And like I said, this was radical in its time. This is changing the very idea about what God is doing on the earth. He's reminding the church spread abroad in the world who they really are. And therefore, who we are as well. He says we are chosen. We are chosen and precious stones. We're not accidental. We are not accidental. You know, there's a, there's a group of people in, in our church tradition that oftentimes might feel like they're accidental. And that's the, the second generation, right? Those that have been born in the church, or even the third generation. And there's a question in their mind. Well, am I just here because mom and dad brought me and I'm just kind of used to it and I like the people and they have really good potlucks? And or are we here deliberately, on purpose, because we are precious and we are chosen? Each and every one of us. We're not just in the byproduct of some automated world that God set in order. We are precious individually to him. And then he says this key phrase. He mentions a chief cornerstone. Now I have, um, well you know me, I have some special gifts to give away. Anybody remember the bread? Oh, yeah. There's my bread people. Well, I don't have that many gifts this year. I just have 12 gifts, oddly enough. That's a good biblical number, isn't it? I have 12 gifts I'm going to give out to those that are paying attention. I know. I mean, if those teenagers would come in and sit in these extra chairs, they're all rolling their eyes right now. So, I want you to answer some questions as we go through this. 
So like I said, I don't have one for everybody. So and please don't you know, scramble and jump over each other to grab it. Who is the chief cornerstone? I think Mr. Sean Witt was the first. Christ Jesus, that's right. This. Sean, what t-shirt size are you? You are large. Somebody didn't believe you. Sean, would you mind opening that up? Show everybody what it is. Right. Yeah, here's your stone. So there, Mr. Sean is chosen. And it's got a bunch of fish, and it's got a few fish that are going against the rest of the fish. <laughs> All right. I have another question. How do you know that Jesus is the chief cornerstone? How do you know that Jesus is the chief cornerstone? Yeah, that's what my wife said. I was like, that's not the answer. <laughs> And then she said, well, it's a naff question. It's a harder question, isn't it? He told us he was. He told us. In Matthew 21, verse, verses 33 to 46, we get this parable. It's a powerful parable, and there's just a lot going on here. And this is one of the parables when Jesus was taking the gloves off. He was done with these leaders these arrogant men that ruled the people, that controlled their access to God. And he was bringing the truth, whether they liked it or not. He said, here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dresses and went to a far country. Now when the the vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dresses that they may receive his fruit. And the vine dresses took his servants and beat one and killed one and stoned another. And again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dresses saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? What will he do? And they gave him the answer, didn't they? It's one of those, I mean, I don't know when these guys were ever going to learn. They weren't ever going to learn to not debate Jesus. Right? Because he makes them condemn themselves. As he said to, they said to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render him the fruits in their seasons. They condemn themselves. 
right there. And it's so important, too, that we, we notice that, a part, you know, obviously they were hateful and wicked to God's servants. But why? They wanted to keep the fruit for themselves. They didn't want to give the fruit back to God. They didn't want to return that fruit. And, you know, we have other parables, don't we, of the talents where God is expecting us to give him a profit, to return to him the fruit of our labors. And Jesus said to them, you haven't read the scriptures, have you? Have you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken. But on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him as a prophet. Understand what Jesus is saying here. This is the very basis upon which Jesus was building something brand new. It was a process by which he was taking, uh, taking a kingdom from one people and giving it to another. You know, Mark the other day mentioned this cornerstone, didn't he? The chief cornerstone. That is the foundational stone of a structure, of a stone structure. And oddly enough, when you think about it, foundations are not on top of the earth, are they? They are in the ground. They are buried there in the ground to give that stability and that strength. And Jesus is that cornerstone upon which something brand new was going to be built. A new structure on this primary stone. A new building. And it's, you know, it's not built. Notice this, because sometimes people get confused on this point. It is not built on the foundation of the Hebrews. It is not built on that. It is built on something much older. Right? It is built on Jesus Christ himself. It's not being built on the Jewish religion. It's not being built on the traditions of Israel. It is being built on Jesus Christ. And it's so important for us to remember. Earlier, back when he was alone with the disciples in Caesarea, Jesus had a question for them. And you'll probably remember the question in Matthew 16, verses 13 and 19. And it had to do with what Jesus was building. In verse 13, it says, When they came to the region of Caesar Philippi, Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Same sort of question we're asking ourselves, isn't it? Who do they say that I am? So Jesus then asked, or rather, the disciples say, replied and said, Some say John the Baptist. 
some Elijah and others Jeremiah or, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And that's another important thing for us to remember, isn't it? That if we know and understand and see that Jesus is the Christ, just as with Peter, it has been revealed to us by the Father. There's another scripture that says that no one comes to the Son unless the Spirit of the Father draws him. And then he goes on to say this. He says, and I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, it would be an understatement to say that there's some confusion about this particular scripture, isn't there? There's an entire church tradition built on a misunderstanding of this scripture. Peter's name means what? First one to put your hand up. Right there. Small rock or pebble. All right. You want a hat or a t-shirt? T-shirt. What size do you want? She said it. I didn't. <laughs> so, pebble. Small stone. There's a lot of interesting things here because Peter never forgot that. He never forgot how Jesus played with the meaning of his name. Peter was not confused. He was not confused about what Jesus was saying. He understood that Jesus was saying that he was a lively stone. A lively stone that, that we've just read that Peter wrote later to the churches. He was not confused as to what Jesus was saying. Jesus was just saying that Peter, he's a stone. Yeah, he is a stone. But that upon himself, the rock of ages, the chief cornerstone, he would build his church. He's building it on himself. Peter was not confused, like I've said. And neither should we be. And we know that Peter's not confused because of what he said much later. Remember when he was on trial for healing a man? Because, you know, that's what they did back then. When somebody got healed in Jesus' name, we're going to put that guy on trial. Right? In Acts chapter 4 and verse 8, Peter replied as he's talking to these leaders and rulers. He says, and it said that he was filled with the Holy Spirit and said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means has he been made well? Let it be known to you and all the people of Israel 
that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief corner stone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter was not confused. He had no illusions that the church was being built on him. A little pebble. What happens when you would build a big structure on a little pebble? Crush it. It has to be built on a cornerstone. A powerful cornerstone. Strong. Capable of holding up the weight of the structure. Jesus is building his church. He's building it upon himself. And he's taking lively stones and adding them to himself. But as, but as well as building his church, he's also building something else. What else is he building? We touched upon it back in Matthew 21 and verse 43. Those of you that have your Bibles on you might be able to get some free stuff. What else is he building? Oh, the t-shirt right here. Matthew 21 and verse 43. He took this from one people and gave it to another. A kingdom. There you go. Shirt or hat? I do have a medium. There you go. He's building us into a kingdom. Now, we often think God is going to bring the kingdom. And of course, he is. But what is a kingdom made up of? People, right? And yeah, okay, we have territory and so on. The territory belongs to him. He says, the earth is mine and everything that dwells in it. He is building us into a kingdom. It says, therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you, from the Jews, from the Israelites, from those that had the opportunity first. And given to those that are bearing fruits thereof. This foundation, this cornerstone, which Jesus was Jesus Christ Himself, is the foundation of the kingdom of God. He is the foundation, He is the King, He is the all in all. And it's interesting, too, that He is going to give it to those that produce and give Him fruit. The exact opposite to, to what he was describing Israel and the leaders of Israel. They were trying to keep the fruit for themselves. Or maybe even not grow any fruit. He is wanting us to be fruitful and to give him that fruit. This church that Jesus was building upon himself and still is will grow into that kingdom of God. And there's something else going on here too. 
I almost think it's an ironic statement when Jesus said, it's going to be taken from you builders and given to someone else. The problem was is that they thought that they were the builders. They were not the builders. And it's interesting, there's a scripture, I think it's in Hebrews, is it not? That we look for a city whose builder and maker is God. That has always been our goal. And that's always been his goal. He alone has the power to build the kingdom, to build the church, and he's given it to us. It says in verse 43, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing fruit. So the church is built on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. It's being built, as Peter told us earlier in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5. It's being built of living stones, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And this brings imagery to mind, doesn't it? A spiritual house. You know, there was a physical house. There was a temple. And sacrifices were performed daily. If we are being built into a spiritual house, what sacrifices do we be, need to be performing spiritually, daily? I'll leave that to you to figure out. It is a great irony, I think, that man's response to this revelation, that Jesus is building his church, that he is building his church, that he is building this kingdom. Man's response, especially in the Western world, right, the Christian world, has been to do what? Build massive cathedrals and minsters and churches out of stone as though they are building the kingdom, as though they are building the church. And you know, we've been, what, last year? Last year, we, we toured several cathedrals, beautiful cathedrals in England. And, you know, some of these things that they took so long to build, the architect was dead by the time it was finished, you know? And they are beautiful. And I, I suppose we could assume the best of these men, that they were trying to honor God, but... It's futile, isn't it? We, our response has been, no, we'll, we'll, we'll build it. And that's just the problem that Israel had. No, 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 we'll, we'll build the kingdom, and we'll do it our way. right? And we didn't let God build the kingdom, build his church for us. He is building us into a spiritual house. It's not the other way around. But is this it? Or is there more to who we are? In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, he really starts to get to the point of all this. He says to the church and to us, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him 
who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who are once not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but have now obtained mercy. You know, we've read this scripture many times, and it's, it's easy to forget the enormity of what he was writing. The transition that he was announcing. Let me ask you this question. First one to answer gets a goodie. Before Jesus came, before he died, before he sacrificed himself for us, and before he was raised, before all of that work that he performed for us, how could someone worship God? How could they find forgiveness and reconciliation and atonement? Mark? Go to the temple, right? Pat? Okay. So I think these are going to be more fun to throw, don't you think? Oh, too weak. <laughs> I'm going to blame it on the hat. Yeah. Surely they'd have to come to the Jews, right? And to the priests in the temple. They'd have to come to that place and offer a sacrifice. But what if you were not Jewish or Israelite at all? You'd have to become one. Gentlemen, that might be difficult. You'd have to go through a process. You'd have to be circumcised. And certainly at the time that Jesus was speaking to these, these leaders, you would have to take on all these traditions and burdens that they had decided to add to the pure law of God. The good law of God that he gave us. So they would put all these barriers in place. And even then, they were assigned to the court of the Gentiles. They were still a little separate. They were not following. The Jewish leaders and the priests at that time, when Jesus was there, they were not following the Lord God. They were not saying that this person is as an Israelite. One of our teens looking for some goodies. So access was limited. <laughs> and what if you lived uh, in Rome? That was quite a trip to go to the temple, wasn't it? So just as Peter told us before, before Christ Jesus, we were cut off. We had no access. We were not a nation. We could not be Jewish or Israelite if we couldn't do those things we would have no hope. Paul said it this way in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11. He says, Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, who once were, uh, who, uh, you who 
once were afar off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That new and living way. Without Christ, I mean, all of us, right? All of us, without Christ Jesus. We're just in the same circumstance, the same condition as those Gentiles. We were cut off. We were without forgiveness. We were without reconciliation. We were without healing. And we can all think back to times when we were in that place. And you know, if you think about it, (laughs) what if we had to access the temple now and do sacrifices now, today, in order for atonement and reconciliation with God? Where would we go? There is no temple. Where's the Ark of the Covenant? Where's the mercy seat? There's nowhere for the blood to be sprinkled, is there? It is only through Christ Jesus that we can have that atonement, that reconciliation. Paul continues in Ephesians 2.14, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of the commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who are afar off and those who are near. For through him we, have both, um, we, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God. Having having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place, of God in the spirit. Again, we see that chief cornerstone, don't we? Central to who we are. And central to who Jesus is. So who are we? Well, we've already said that we're being built into a church. We are also being built into a kingdom. But what else did Paul just add? He just added that we are now going to be what? Kimberly? Almost. Anybody else? I thought I heard somebody say it, but they didn't put up their hands. Okay, well I'll go I'll go with the boss. Alright. The full answer as the temple of God, right? All right, what size, Kimberly? Or a hat? A large? Uh, don't have a large anymore. I have an extra large and a medium. Okay. All right, we're going to get a trade back here. I'm going to try and not hit the bulb. The temple of the Lord. We don't think about that often. 
Because, hey, here we are at the Feast of Tabernacles. And it's a tabernacle. It's a temporary dwelling. Yes, it is. We are temporary dwellings right now. But what will we be made later in the resurrection, in the kingdom of God? Permanent temples. Permanent temples to God. A holy temple, a dwelling place. We are a church, we are a kingdom, and we are a temple. But there's still more. There's lots more. Because we did not add to our list the things that Peter himself gave us back in, in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. So let's quickly go back over that. 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, but you are a chosen generation in verse 9. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. So we are a church. We are a kingdom. We are a temple. We are a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation. A special people. We are the chosen. The chosen of God. And there are many of us. And God decides who is chosen. But we are part of that chosen generation. But there's something curious about the statement from Peter because it's not all of his own words. He lifted some words from somewhere else. And of course he would, wouldn't he? We wouldn't expect him to just throw this out without a proof text. So, where is he getting his words from? Well, back in Exodus chapter 19, starting in verse 3, it was when the children of Israel arrived at Sinai. And God called Moses up to the mountain. He said this. And the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Sounds familiar because this is what Peter has told us. He has told us this is what we are. The children of Israel failed. They failed miserably. God was so patient with them. For how many years? While he was making this promise to them, they were preparing to rebel again. And later we can read of the golden calf that just popped out of the fire all by itself. They failed miserably in almost every way to be the kingdom of priests. There's very few times in their history that they really actually did it right. And that is so sad. So when Jesus arrives, he makes it clear. He's taking back the kingdom. He's taking it back. The church, which itself means congregation. It, it means congregation. And how many times in the scriptures do we read the congregation of Israel? 
the church is the replacement for Israel. God is building, Jesus is building a new congregation, a new kingdom, a church on himself. Jesus has taken the kingdom away from Israel and has given it to us. This is part of who we are. We are a church. We are a kingdom. We are a temple. We are a royal priesthood. We're a holy nation. We are a special people. We are the chosen generation. Going back to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4. But this time... Uh, yeah, yeah, this time starting in verse 4. It says, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love for which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you've been saved, and raised up together and made us uh, sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. But by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship. We're his workmanship. We are not the builders of the kingdom. We are not the builders of the church. We are not even the author of our own salvation and our own lives. Christ Jesus is he we are his workmanship he is the workman he is the one that's creating us and molding us created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them good works another way of saying that is to be fruitful to have the fruits of the spirit to return to God the fruits of his investment in us we are his workmanship. We are his chosen. Every single one of us. We're not here by accident. You young people are not here by accident. You are here because you are chosen. To be his workmanship. To be his church. His kingdom. His temple. His special People, his royal priesthood. And perhaps the most precious thing about being chosen by God is that we become his children. His children. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to the adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glory, of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. This really goes to the heart of who we are. Who are we? If we can drop all the other things that we've explored today and remember only this one thing, we are the children of God. He has adopted us. 
We are his children. So often this world disappoints us. Even our closest loved ones at times can disappoint us. And we can feel lost. We can feel with that, that we don't have a goal, that we don't have a purpose in life. This is our purpose. This is our reason for being, to be his children. We know God will not always reject Israel. We can look in the scriptures and we can find these beautiful passages where he will restore Jacob and his descendants. And the words that he has promised to them also will fall and do fall on us. In Isaiah 43, we have this beautiful promise, and it is to the house of Israel and the house of Judah, but it is also to us, because we are this new creation in Christ Jesus. We are this new kingdom, this church that he is building, building us into. It says in verse 1, But now, thus says the Lord who created you, and you can put your name right there, Thus says the Lord who created you, and he who formed you. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. He knows us by our name. He knows us personally and individually. He says, I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Do we accept this? Do we accept this from God? That he has done this? You know, we have heard in some of our messages during this feast, of some difficult times ahead. We can look at prophecy and we can, maybe we can't understand all things and know all timing, but we know just <laughs> in our last year's experience, right, how rapidly life can change. How restrictions can be so quickly placed on us. And there are certain states that what we are doing today right here, will be and is illegal. That is happening in the United States today. There are difficult times ahead. The most important thing that we can do, drink of that pure milk of the word. Drink it in. Bring it into us. Make it a part of us. And remember and believe and trust that we are chosen. Because there will be times when we will doubt it. There will be times when we are afraid. When we might want to give up. When we might want to just go along. We are being prepared. These kinds of struggles <laughs> are not 
They are not something that the church was unfamiliar with. It was born in these kinds of struggles. And, and if we look back over the history of the church of God, and certainly Sabbath keeping, holy day keeping, biblically focused and following, if we look back at that history, we are living in a narrow period of time where we've had the freedom and the safety to do so. It's so important for us to remember as we look toward the future and the difficult times ahead that we are chosen. So there's one more question to answer. Why? Why are we chosen? For what purpose? Well, it's been weaved all the way through this message. Time and time again. The condemnation uh, that, that Jesus had for the leaders of, of Israel and Judah was that they tried to keep the fruit from God. That they weren't producing fruit from God. That is part of the reason why. Peter was trying to get us to understand. And he was also trying to get us to understand this, this other key part. Remember he says, you're a chosen generation. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Share it. Proclaim it. Tell anyone that we can pin down long enough. And you might think, but I don't... I don't know how to do that. I'm not a salesperson. I'm not an outgoing personality. I, I don't have the skills. Every single one of us has the most important skill necessary. We know, without a doubt, what Christ has done for us. It's that simple. That's, if that's all we share, then that's enough. That's all we share. It is enough. I want to skip forward a little bit. There's a, there's a sweet little pastoral guidance that Paul gives Philemon. It's an encouragement for Philemon. And I think it can help us understand the simplicity of sharing the gospel. And, and why, part of the why we are chosen. We don't need some complex methodology, some seminary education. We don't need some grand spiritual gifts. Paul just says this, I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers. And I would really love to have Paul praying for me, but that's not possible, is it? But that must have been so good for Philemon to hear. Hearing of your love and faith, of which you have toward the Lord Jesus Christ and toward all the saints, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you, in Christ Jesus. Now that might be a little kind of convoluted the way the King James translates it. The New Living Translation says, I always thank my God when I pray for you, Philemon. Because I keep hearing about your faith in the Lord Jesus 
and your love for all of God's people. And I'm praying that you will put into action the generosity that comes from your faith as you understand and experience all the good things we have in Christ. It is that simple. That we just draw out of ourselves all the good things that Christ Jesus has done for us. There is a lot of hardship in the world. There's a lot of bitterness. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of pain that is done to us. And sometimes by us. Sometimes by us to ourselves. Paul says, just focus on these things. On sharing all the good things we have in Christ Jesus. Just share that with one another, with the world, with anyone who will listen. It's that simple. And maybe our evangelism can grow. I don't know. But that is all we need to start with. So, I still have some more goodies. I've got, uh, I've got five hats here. Somebody tell me some of the things that we are. Put your hand up. What are we? We're chosen. Uh, medium or extra large? Or a hat? Extra large. Man, you're really good at catching. That's good. What else are we? A temple. Who said temple? Awesome. All right. I'm tr- just guard your heads. Oh, wrong person. <laughs> what else? A royal priesthood. A hat, Maxine, or a medium shirt? A hat or a medium shirt? So we've got the church. Somebody said, what did you say? A royal priesthood? The chosen? Why not? We are the children of God. Definitely listening. Living stones. Awesome. Out of the mouth of babes. The two more hats. No, we are not the cornerstone, Joseph. A nation. Now you have to wear this later. We're the church, yes. We're the congregation. There you go. We are the church. We are a kingdom. We are being built into a spiritual house, a temple. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a special people. We are the chosen. 